The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on one of Australia's leading pop-punk bands, One Dollar Short. I'm speaking with guitarist and songwriter Trent Crawford about the days when One Dollar Short were the number one Aussie band in this genre. I had a great chat with Trent about One Dollar Short and also his time in another leading Australian band, Something With Numbers. He also co-wrote a song with country queen Casey Chambers on her Bittersweet album. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of One Dollar Short.
band was uh, formed in 1998. How did you guys first get together? So the story goes, Scotty Woods used to work at HMV at Erin Affair. Any Central Coast locals would, would know the spot. And basically me and Michael, the drummer, we had a band going called 976 Moto, but we didn't have a singer. So we'd just go to the local rehearsal studio at West Gosford. We'd write songs and rehearse and whatever. And One Dollar Short was already a band, and they were rehearsing in the room next door. And as it turned out, Scotty uh, wanted Mick, because Mick's a freaking amazing drummer. And But Scotty was playing guitar at the time. And then Mick sort of basically said to him, look, you can, um, I'm keen, but, you know, it's a package deal. comes with Trent. And um, that's how it came about. So that's that's how me and Mick joined the band. So the band, I don't know how long they were together, maybe six months, I'm going to guess, before me and Mick joined. Like they were just a rehearsal band at that stage? I don't know if they'd done any shows yet. Um, and maybe they had, they, because we didn't, they did that that crazy party. I don't remember that, Avoca. Yes, yes. Because we were at that show watching, but they did that. I'm not sure, they might have done a few shows, I'm not really sure on that super early before we joined. The band comes to national attention with the release of the From the Start EP in 1999. The lead single from the EP is Cartoons and Chalkboards. This song received plenty of uh, airplay on Triple J and it really gave the, the band a boost. So that must have been a great start for you guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We, um, The way I remember it, we we made a demo, like an actual tape that we recorded ourselves and we sent that round to all the record labels and everything and we got a response from Rapido, which came on board to help us then, you know, record from the start and... Man, I don't really remember like any moment where it sort of took off. I definitely remember I'd skip forward a bit, but I remember when Triple M picked up Is This The Part? There was a real noticeable thing there with a big, you know, um, insurgent of fans. But from the start, it always felt like the band felt from from the very beginning, it was always just a constant, it just kept, things just kept happening. And you guys are in the moment, so it doesn't yeah. feel like it's happening. It's just step after step. And because we didn't know any different, we didn't know what to expect, you know? So it's just like. We were very, very lucky, you know, to, I think a big part of it too is we were at the right time when skateboarding, motocross, snowboarding, that culture was exploding and that music was all part of it, you know, so that was, a, it just it was just like the perfect storm and we were, uh, yeah, lucky enough to be in the right spot at the right time and with the right the amount of talent. Yeah. 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 
So as you said, one dollar short or ODS to the fans. Everybody yeah, yeah. likes to abbreviate it. Yeah. Um, it was signed with Rapido Label, and the the first release of for this label or the first first official release comes out in two thousand and one, and it's called Board Game. The uh, the EP tops the alternative charts and also reaches number thirty seven on the Main Street Aria charts. The title track Board Games is a really catchy song, and uh, it's it's well received. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, yep, always a uh, fan favourite in the set, you know, all the way to the very end. Um, I do remember doing that. That was the first time we did a film clip was that um, board game film clip in it. Um, Tim Flaherty, who was in the band at the time, worked at Channel 9 and we got into Channel 9 studios there and did that, the white background thing and that was the first experience of doing a film clip where... And the boys it, have got coloured hair, one's got blue yeah, and one's got the yeah, dyed... Yeah, Jackie the Mad yep. Dog, yep. And... um. I always used to think, Ben, you know, before we did that stuff, thinking, oh, do you want a film clip? This is going to be awesome. I can't wait. But you literally, it's like you start at 8 a.m. and you finish at, you know, 11 p.m. And you're like, how many more times do you need us to play this song? Like, surely. Yeah. But every film clip's the same, you know? And then it doesn't take long to get sick of making film clips. <laughs> 
So after the first time, you're almost done with the film clip. Well, uh, not really, but you yeah. know, you can't. It's such a privilege to be able to do it, but at the same time, it's like, oh, here we go. It's going to be a long day. It's not the three minutes that you see in the clip. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. The media love to find a, a pigeonhole to, to put bands in and categories and genres. One dollar short is linked to is the the pop punk sort of uh, genre. Yep. Whatever that means, you know. To me, it's it's all rock and roll, pretty much. It's uh, yeah, yeah. You guys have been put in the pop punk uh, era. Overseas acts such as um, Blink-182 and Green Day are, are sort of contemporaries of you guys. Yep. And and One Dollar Short is the, is the leading band in this genre. And you guys used to create pandemonium at your live shows. The mosh pit used to just go off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think a lot of that. A lot of it's got to do with Scott. Like Scotty was is he's such a great um such a great front man. Like he was he was awesome. Everyone sort of had their job, but he was really, really good at um just connecting with the people and, you know, making them feel a part of it. And there's obviously a lot of energy coming off stage from the, the band. But um I'd have to put that one down to, to Mr. Scotty Woods if you're listening out there. Good work, mate. <laughs> and if people don't know Scotty, you know, yeah, obviously check out the, the YouTube clips. Scotty's a, a massive guy, well over six foot. He's like a hundred plus kilos with heaps of colourful tattoos. And before piercings were really in, he was he was the guy. He looked like a rock star before he was a rock star. Yeah, hundred percent. And he's such one of the one of the sweetest guys. Like um he like he was a security guard at, you know, at some point. So he could handle himself. But he never, ever, you know, went looking for trouble or whatever. But I remember one time we are in Perth, we were touring with Gyroscope. It was after the show, you know, we are out at his club and having fun. And this big, like, big Tongan guy, he was huge. And he was um, he was causing trouble. And it's the only time I've ever seen it. But Scotty pulled out his, uh, you know, I don't know what karate or jiu-jitsu or whatever he does and just handled this guy. And it was just like, oh, my God. You know, because to that point we were kind of like, oh, really, Scotty, Are you re- can you really do that? And then that, yeah, that moment was like, woo. And then whenever he came up with a song choice or something, he goes, yeah, mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, That sounds good. (laughs) So five months after the release of the board game EP, $1 short released another EP called Press and Hold. Again, it tops the alternative charts, but this time on the ARIA mainstream, it gets to number 23. So you guys are on an upward trajectory. Yep. Yeah, always, um, not that we knew it at the time, but it just, like, looking back on it, it felt like that, like, it was like that. The band just kept, I don't know, we were just, I, I think luck's a huge thing with it, really. Like, I think a band, the band's got to be good, you know. You've got to have decent songs, but there is definitely a big element of luck and, you know, and timing, like I was saying before, in the right spot at the right time. But, um, yeah, definitely just kept, feel like the shows were getting bigger, we're getting better support slots, you know, we're getting on festivals by this stage. And, yeah, just, you know, we're just riding that wave. Yep. And the uh, the lead single is Satellite, and this song yeah. was really well received. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the, you know, from what I can tell, that's the song. Like when people think of $1 Short, that's the, the main song, you know. Um, we pretty much used to finish every show with it. It was, yeah, it was the, the hit, so to speak.
short were a, a big part of the soundtracks to the extreme sports videos as we were saying before and and you guys really made your name for yourselves in that era and these guys are uh, you know whether it's skaters or, or motocross or surfers or snowboarders yeah they're a very loyal uh, fan base for you guys yeah yeah like a huge thing for us in the early days was to find them remember the bodyboarding videos yes I hope I got that right. There was a local bodyboarding um, video that used our like the early songs of um, from the start, and we played a, a party of his at Womberall. It was on the main drag there near Wombi Whoppers. And before that show, we, was, we were just doing, you know, playing just wherever we could to whoever was there. No one knew the band. That was the first time that I remember we turned up and it was like, oh my god, like there's like hundreds of people here to see the band, and I. From memory, I think that show lasted maybe six or seven songs and got shut down, you know, police and all that sort yeah. of stuff because it was basically in a house. But that, from then, that that was, yeah, a huge boost for us being part of the surfing, you know, the bodyboarding video yep. culture. And that's how me and Mick got into that punk rock music to begin with was um, Moto Triple X because me and Mick both raced um, motocross okay. and we're still active with, you know, bikes. We love it. And yeah, when Moto Triple X came out, that was pretty much the first time I heard sort of punk rock. Like Strung Out, Ashes came on. There's a, a, a scene in it. And we were just hooked. Because prior to that, me and Mick were heavy. Like we were into heavy metal. We played in metal bands when we were younger, you know? So that, that to go whole back, culture, yeah, it was a big a big change for us musically. Well, to go back to the start, your was it your father who owned East Gosford Music Shop? Yeah, that's was, correct. And that was really the music shop. Everybody knew you from buying strings and, and yep. drum kits and whatever. And yep. so, you, as you said, you were you were teaching pretty early on as well? Yeah, I wasn't teaching. I, no, I was teaching pretty early on. And that shop- 
Like I used to hang out at that shop when I was, yeah, since I was born, pretty much, you know. Um, and that's the first time I met Mick, the drummer of Wonderful Short. He was playing in a uh, metal band called Dead Intent, and um, he used to come in with his super long hair. He was a real tough guy back then, um, looking at cymbals and whatever. And there I was in the corner playing Megadeth, yeah, you know, Metallica riffs on the guitar. And that's how we first met and bonded and whatnot, and then got together in those bands. And then the teaching thing, I remember Dad had students and. Though it was at a time when Metallica was like huge and all these kids would come in and want to learn one and, you know, yeah, Sanitarium yeah. and all these Metallica songs. And dad, um, I don't know, just didn't want anything to do with that, you know, and he's just like asked me to come in. So I'd come in for half a lesson and teach this kid how to play this riff. And okay, that's, yep. that's kind of how it started for me with the teaching thing. Yep. I just wanted to lock that back in because, yeah, it was a, it was a vital part of your, your yep. growing as a musician for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, that, and I had the shop. Like I bought the shop off Dad. Um, oh, I couldn't tell you what year it was, but it was around the $1 short time. So while we were touring, that whole time I had the business. And um, so it was a bit of a – it was never an issue, but a juggling thing, you know, because – We'd be away for three weeks at a time, and so I'd have – there was a couple of guys, like, after the fall. So Mark from after the fall, he used to, like, look after the shop for me while I was away. Yep. And also Joel, Joel Kaur, who played in Ballpark and, you know, he um, Jungle Fever, and then he's uh, played in Irrelevant for a bit. Um, he'd look after the shop for me, and uh, he met his wife in the shop, you know, so he's got a lot to thank me for, yeah, that guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, the shop was a good time. Another great single off the Press and Hold EP is Fingerprints. And mm. again, that received great coverage on the radio and, and by you know, TV like Rage on ABC and, and Channel V. Yeah, Fingerprints, that's one of my favourite songs from the catalogue. And that funny how that come together, that was, speaking of the shop, that was in the back of the shop at East Gosford Music there. So it's just me and Checky. And Checky, um, we were just mucking around, just hanging out. You know, we had, I had a guitar and he had his bass. And he played that opening riff. You know, down, 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 down. And I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. Do that again. And we literally wrote that song in, like, we had it demoed in 10 minutes sort of thing. It just came together Sweet. really, really quick. Super fun to play. I really like the film clip for that one. That was like a super long day, but that I really, I still enjoy that film clip. And it's like in a factory warehouse, yeah. black and white. Down and, in Melbourne. Yep. And, well, yeah, that was a huge day, that clip.
In 2002, the long-awaited full-length album comes out from the band and is released to critical acclaim and is snapped up by the fans. The album is titled Eight Days Away and One Dollar Short once again topped the alternative charts, but you go even one better. You crack the top 10 in the areas and reaching a high of number seven. Yep. That, what I mentioned earlier, I remember that. That was like a huge moment. Um, Is this the part when that song took off and got grabbed by radio and whatnot? So we were playing, I don't know, say Annandale's and I don't, you know, like say they were 300 capacity or whatever, playing those sort of venues. But then when that came out, we had a shot at the Annandale and the difference was just enormous in numbers. And even the fans, like there were different, because you had your hardcore punk rock people that, you know, were always a part of it. But then that that radio play brought in this other sort of fan base. Um, so it just was growing and growing. And the the singing at the shows, like you'd play that song and the crowd was singing every word and way louder than what Scotty was on stage. And it was just like that feeling, you can't, that's, you know, nothing compares to that. That was, yeah, especially the first time, you know, in yep. the early days when that happens, you're just like, oh my God, what is happening, you know? So the crowd energy is coming back at you guys. Back at you, yeah. And it really smacks you in the face the first time. It's just like, whoa, what's happening, you know? Like, how do they know this song? You know? And being the guitarist or whatever, I'm sure you guys almost got lost as the energy hit you to go, as you said, what's going on? You've, you'd never yeah. received this sort of well, adulation. Yeah, you don't get lost. You feed on it. It's, it, it just it goes straight back into you and you just feel, you know, a thousand feet tall and you just feel yep. like you can't do anything wrong. And Yeah, yeah, which then goes back, you know, back out. And you guys would have done plenty of shows like that. So it was, it was obviously a, a thing that you might have got used to after a while. For sure, you do. Um, you take it for granted, and then you go to a different country. So we went to Japan in, I think it was 2004, and same thing. So you, you're in this different country. It's just absolutely amazing, and, you, you know, you're sort of pinching yourself going, how is this? How do we start this little band? And we're playing, you know, to these awesome shows in Japan. And same thing, the whole crowd, is they're singing every word. And then you kind of get lost and you forget you're in a different country. So after the show, you go out to the merch desk or whatever and you want to try and connect with the fans and talk to them. But they don't talk English. <laughs> yes, So of it's course. just like, oh, my God. But you, you don't speak English, but you sing all the words of our songs in English. But we can't have a community you know, a conversation. That yeah. was a real moment. It was like, oh, wow. So, yeah, it's a, a powerful thing. And in Japan, what sort of level of success did you guys reach? Well, we had Big Mouth Records. They put the record out, and Motto, he was the, he. We were really lucky to have him on on one side of the fence, um, you know, to promote the band or whatever. But we went over there, and he tour managed us. And without him, we would have been no. Like I had no idea. I was naive to it that there's there was no English spoke, and even just trying to get directions to the subway or directions to get a taxi, it was really hard. But he had everything sorted for us, you know. So we were we were looked after. And who was this? Big Mouth Records. Okay, and yep. Motto was his. Um, was his? Yeah, what we yep. called. He's him. the owner. Or, yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. He was the the big chief. Um, so he was he looked after us, and the, the shows were great. Like we had um. We toured with another American band who I'm not going to remember their name. It wasn't Lucky Seven, but they had a name like that. Um, but they were fantastic. Huge shows. So, yeah, successful in Japan. We did the one tour, um, but always get fan mail from Japan. Um, people asking us to come back. We'd love to go back. Um, but, yeah, it was a great thing. And this is when the internet is just starting to roll out sort of thing, especially in Australia. So it would have made connecting with your fans a lot easier than written stamps or, or whatnot yeah. sort of thing. So how did you guys find the, the formation of the internet? I don't remember so much internet being – I definitely remember fan mail. That was a thing. And Scotty was great at that. He'd connect with the fans and he loved that, that so whole that thing. So that were just actual letters. Pen and, yeah, yep, pen yep. and paper. 
And that's how we made our connection with the Ataris. I used to be a pen pal with um, with Chris from the Ataris. So that was pre-email. Okay. That yep. was, I guess that was 98, you know, 99, 2000. Oh, I'm a bit blurry. I don't know when the, you know. Sort of early we 2000s. Never had, yeah, yeah, we never had yep. MySpace or the Facebook, Instagram, all that was never around. But you guys band. were actually pre all that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, so we yep, were pre. Yep. It must have just come in, like just yep. after we sort of folded up. I think MySpace might have been just around towards the end. It's hard to imagine a world without what we've got today. Oh, it is. Yeah. Like I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, wow. Um, it is. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Well, and the, But the thing, I've had this conversation with friends is back then, right? So when we started out, because not only were we a band, we were fans of music. So we wanted to go and see bands. But to see a band, like, or to hear a band, someone would go, oh, you know, you should check out, you know, whoever. Um, they're awesome. But you had to go. We had to drive to Sydney to check out the band. You couldn't just get online and like listen to 30 seconds of a song and go, oh, yeah, no, I don't like it. Or and see if it's like going to be it. worth the trip. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, it's, it's a different world now. Yeah, for yeah. sure. As you said before, the uh, the lead single is, is this the part? Yeah. 
it receives great support, equal to satellite, I'm sure, of of the success with the the adulation from the fans. Yep. With that song, it was like a, a again a hit single, a hit radio single. So is it fun to play? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was not not fun to play. It was it was definitely written for that purpose. Like we, we when we were writing the record, um, the record company did ask us to, to write a single. So we sat down and and that's what we came up with. Like we still are proud of the song and stand behind it. But it, it, you know there was that preconceived idea to you know try was and a write a single. Yeah, yep. Yep. and well, you know you never know. You know you, you like we've had songs where we thought, oh, this is going to work. This is going to be huge, but it doesn't do anything, and then. Is this the part, for example, we never thought it was going to be a winner, but for whatever reasons, it just catches on with people. Um, and that song, that was that was the song, 100%, that just took us to that that next level. Had the Triple J, oh, sorry, the Triple, Triple M's M and the, huge, the yeah. real commercial stations are starting to play that. Yeah. And um, on Triple M, they even brought you guys in to do the um, the weird song of the week or whatever. Yeah, you yeah, guys yeah. did Murder on the Dance Floor. Yeah. And I haven't been able to find a copy of that. but um, yeah. yeah, I don't think it got finished. Okay. I think we had the um it was really thrown together last minute and I remember I had to um it was like it might have been the night before. So I sat there and I wrote out this sort of made up a, a rough demo of it. But we got to the studio and I remember um I don't know Scotty was sick or something happened with Scotty and he couldn't sing. So it never actually happened. Okay, so yeah. Unless I've got that wrong, but I'm sure that's the the case. It's probably why you can't find a copy of it. So surely one of the highlights of the band's life is gaining the honour of taking over the Rage Couch <laughs> uh, and joining the illustrious ranks of the Rage Guest Programmer. That's something to tell your grandkids about. Oh, yeah, that was fun. I um, I wish I could oh, – maybe it is available online. I'll have to have a look. But um, oh, it was awesome. They basically just give you a telephone book of all the songs. So we all got to pick, I think, 10 songs each sort of thing. And it was super cool. Yeah, yeah, super fun to do, sitting on the couch. And they still do it to this day. Yep. Um, yeah, I'll have to go back and have a look. It'd be fun to watch again. But yeah, no, that was, yeah, that was a huge highlight for and sure. was it hard to pick 10 songs out of all those? Or you, you had not, a, yep. Nah, not really. I could, you could have picked 40, you know. So, nah, not hard. And as not a grommet anyway. growing up on the Central Coast, you probably would have rocked, watched Rage oh, and, and had those that, 10 songs that you're picking anyway that think, well, this is the ones that I'm going to yeah. ever, ever had the chance or, you know, maybe you didn't even dream that much that you'd ever ever be the guy as a uh, as a guest programmer yeah. on Rage. No, nah, I never had that dream. Um, never thought that was a possibility. But I remember that they used to have the guitar and heavy metal nights and as a kid, loved it. You'd, yeah, you'd, that'd be a reason to stay up or get up late and, and, you know, sit there from 12 to whenever it was to four in the morning and and watch all these awesome clips that you uh, you couldn't access because there was no YouTube or whatever. You yep. know, it was the only place you could see it. Another popular song from the Eight Days Away album is Unsung Hero. Oh, yeah. That's almost getting into a ballady type yep. area for One Dollar Short and, and yep. it showed you guys were, were growing as musicians as well. That's what I'm – that was – he is – was one yeah. of my favorite songs to play live. Always love playing that. Um, there's a really cool clip on YouTube of us playing it on the Juliana Theory tour, and um, they get up at the end and be silly buggers and dance around. But um, oh, I love that song, absolutely love it. I can't remember too much about how it came about writing it, but yeah, no, yeah, great song. Still, yeah, still stands up.
So while we're still talking about the uh, Eight Days Away album, another another good song off that is the the letter. Oh yeah, you like that one? Yeah, like that one. Yeah, and yeah. Um, that was a that's a crowd favorite as well. There's um there's a handful of them that to just stand out in my mind as you know the crowd reacting and that yeah that was another one of them. Two forty five a.m. Yeah, yeah. It's two forty five a.m. So to keep the fans happy, uh, another EP is released, and the lead single is Ten Years. This is also on the Eight Days Away album, but it was yep. it was put out as as another single. And again, this song's well received by the fans. Yep, yeah, Ten Years is a weird song for me. I, f- I felt like it feels out of place, and the film clip is um, a bit quick, you know, a bit weird and whatever. And for me personally, anyway, I felt that that song never, um, I don't know, it just seemed deemed to fit with everything else, but. You know, we didn't really play it live either, I don't think. Um, and it had, you know, it was a single, so we should have maybe. Maybe <laughs> we went wrong. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a um, a strange song for for me. That one, the old ten years. But again, it shows a bit of versatility from you yeah, guys true. that you're, you're not playing in the one the one song forty five times over sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. yeah.
yeah. and if you guys weren't feeling it, maybe that's why you you didn't want to do it push live it. and and push it. So yeah, 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 true. And uh, the Ten Years uh, EP is is famous, a cover by you guys of Not Pretty Enough, Casey Chambers' uh, country crossover hit. So, yeah. how did this come about? So this came about. I must, must have been out two thousand and one, maybe. I'm going to guess. I heard Casey Chambers for the first time on the radio which was not pretty enough. And for whatever reasons, everyone's got their own version of this. Her voice just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like the hair stood up on the back of my neck, the whole, and I was, what is this? I need like, you know. And from that moment, she's been one of my all-time favourite artists. Like I, abs, like Barricades and Brick Walls, that record is my on my top three. You know, I still listen to it regularly. Absolutely love that record. So I fell in love with her music, and I actually, if I skip forward, I've got a song I wrote with Casey on her late, uh, well, she just brought out a brand new record, but her record, Bittersweet. Okay, yeah. So, the, you know, for me back then, hearing her on the radio for the first time, to think I'm going to write a song with her and have it on a record was like, nah, that's not going to happen. Yep. So that was a, a huge highlight for me. Too Late to Save Me, I wrote with um, one, of my, one of my great mates who we play in a little jam band together up on the Central Coast every, every Thursday night. My dad and a few of our other muso mates around get together and we jam these sort of these gigs where we play just in little restaurants and cafes and that sort of thing, just for when we're not on tour to keep our hand in music and get inspired. And I try out a lot of new songs there and um, we play a lot of our favourite covers. And one of the guys who comes along to our gig and plays a lot of mandolin, Trent Crawford, um, one of my best mates and, and we were just hanging around one night having a few drinks and um, ended up writing this song together, Too Late to Save Me, which um, is it's definitely um, not a song about me. It's about a prostitute. <laughs> so I can't say I've had a whole lot of experience in this area. There's definitely another character song where I had to sort of put myself in, in uh, this other place. <laughs> And, but it is from the point of view of the prostitute. Um, I, I don't know how well, um, how convincing I am in the song. <laughs> I guess that's for other people to figure out. Uh, but it's certainly a lot of fun to sing, you know. It's, it's a bit of a crazy song that we had a great time. Um, actually, this is the only other song on the album that they let me play banjo on.
So but getting back to the song there, so I had the um, – I can't remember how it happened, but I obviously brought the idea to the band. I said, we should do a cover, you know, like, and what about this, you know, not pretty enough. And you know, they all laughed and thought I was joking. I was like, no, seriously, like, let's just try it. I reckon it'll really, it'll really work. And we played it, and I don't think they could um, deny it. It just, you know, translated really well into that, yep. that style. And I think Scotty was a little bit sus on singing Am I Not Pretty Enough, you know, but he's a pretty good-looking guy, so pulled it off. Um, in more ways than one, but um, yeah, that's how it come about, and then that became a a huge crowd favorite as well, which I was very happy about. I was happy to play that song. Am I not pretty enough? Is my heart too broken? Do I cry too much? Am I too outspoken? Do I make you laugh? Should I try it harder? that can't be understated is the amount of exposure $1 Short received on being on chart-topping compilation CDs. 
CDs like the Pepsi chart hits, the, these sort of CDs were in uh, at Christmas time when every second kid's uh, stocking, they were stocking fillers, and $1 short was on the biggest and the best of these. So that must have been great exposure for you guys as well. Oh, for sure. And a lot of the times with them, like I don't know if the rest of the band knew, but I didn't really know about it, you know, like I'm sure. Like Michael, the drum, Mick, the drummer, he was kind of the um, – we never had a manager, so to speak, but Mick was a, he ran, you know, the band. He was a huge part of it, of that side of it. So maybe he knew about it. But um, yeah, these things would pop up. And he'd be like, hey, we're on that. That's awesome. You yeah. know? And you never thought anything about it. You didn't need to be asked. Was, you know, you want your music to be everywhere. Yep. So we were like, yeah. And kids that weren't going to hear the band or had probably no access to the band have all of a sudden becoming fans of the band. So you can't beat that sort of uh, publicity. Yeah, either. yeah. Bring it on. And while we're talking about the compilation CDs, you guys also, Christine, have a good kick along. At the time, magazines used to put out their own CDs that you, you buy the magazine and a CD is attached to it, might have half a dozen songs on it. There was a lot of magazines in this time, the smash hits and these sort of things. And and you guys are actually, two of the publications that you guys appeared on are Kerrang! and also the Rolling Stone magazine. So receiving a tick of approval from these hardcore music magazines must have done you know wonders for your ego as a musician i honestly don't even remember the rolling stone one so that's awesome okay yeah i had yeah. no idea i didn't yeah. know about that um i remember the Krang one and i think there was a there was that that australian magazine um her name's going to elude me um but i know we we're on one of them as well but yeah that all of that stuff is fantastic good exposure good to be part of the scene with you know on there with your bandmates you know other bands yep that you tour with and um just being part of that world and again, sort of getting more exposure than you, you probably would have just through radio play. People, yep. you know, these CDs, especially when you get something for free and you like it, you, you, you hang on to it yeah, even a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. And $1 Short played plenty of festivals and, and you guys are a fan favorite in the festivals. Your, your high energy just had the crowd rocking and, and you guys played at um, festivals such as Livid and Homebake and the Falls Festival. Did you guys ever do one day, uh, the Big Day Out? We did Big Day Out uh, in Melbourne. Oh, I kind of know what year it was, but it was Alien Ant Farm and No Effects played that year. That was the only big day out we we played. Yeah, I couldn't tell you what year. I'm I'm really bad with that sort of stuff. My my good mate Joel, like I'll I'll occasionally someone will talk to me about One Dollar Short and they'll go, "Well, what, what, yeah, when was that show?" And I'll have to text him and I'll say, "Hey, when did that happen?" And he'll be straight back to me, you know, yeah. whenever it was. But I get it would have been around about the um the album time, 2002, something like that. Yep. But yeah, that was a trip, you know, big day out. It was huge. And what about with these festival crowds? You're looking out at just masses of people. And, and yep. again, that must be something, a, a surreal moment for you guys to be out there playing, looking at this, going, how good's this? Yeah, yeah. The one, the thing that comes straight to my mind is um, Livid Festival. Once again, I couldn't tell you the year, but it was the Bali bombings, the year of the Bali bombing. Okay, so. Yep. And it just so happened we were playing inside the Horden and it was they had to shut the doors. It was like however many people that is. And it just so happened during the day that that was they were going to do like a tribute, like a minute silence um, during the day and it happened to land in the middle of our set. And I remember like it was just jam-packed, like whatever there was, 6,000 people or something. And um, I remember thinking, oh, this isn't going to go down good. Like there's obviously, there's going to be some idiot out there that's going to, you know. But, yeah, standing on stage um, for a minute, dead quiet, with that many people, and you're on stage, you know, everyone's looking at you. Yep. That was heavy. That was like, oh, man. But it came off, you know, everyone was totally respectful of it, and um, the rest of the show was huge, you know. And I suppose, as you said, such a heavy moment, 
everyone's there, they're feeling it, and then being able to just sort of have a release back into the music must have been a, a, a joyous moment Explosion. for everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. Yeah. In 2003, $1 Short released their next EP, Keepsake. Title's track keepsake. Yeah, that's I love that track. That was in the time when Checky left. Checky might have left twice. He was a bit undecisive, old Checky. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, he and Mikey Zamet came and filled in on bass. And I remember we wrote that song in my parents' lounge room. And keepsake for me, uh, getting a bit nerdy, but the production on that, the sound of that song is my favorite production of anything we ever did. And from memory, Paul McKercher mixed it um, at Studios 301. Okay, yep. I can't remember where he recorded it. Maybe Phil McKellar recorded it. Or maybe Greg Stace recorded it. I can't remember now. But I remember because in a band, like, you know, you got so many chefs or so many cooks in the kitchen. And I remember that song, there was there was more stuff on there than needed to be. But we walked in the studio, Paul McKercher pulled up the mix. And I remember he just listened to it and he just went, ah, oh, that shit. That shit, that, that's good, that's good, that's good. And just made it sound so bloody great. And that's exactly what we needed. You know, we needed someone to go, no, nah, no, nah, that's too much. You don't need that. This doesn't have to be in there, blah, blah, blah. A fresh and, pair of ears. Yeah. Do. Yep. And just like a, a boss. Yeah. To go, nah, you, you just, you know, that's just your ego wanting that there. The song doesn't need it. Because by at that stage, you guys are, are riding the wave of success. And is it hard to not try to uh, write songs or, or produce songs that are, you're thinking, well, this is 
what we want on the radio or are you guys sort of immune from that? No, we never, never fell into that. Um, and I can, I can, I know I, I can say that now, like, you know, in hindsight, cause it's, what's it? 2018. I think we finished up in roughly 2004 or five, something like that. We did do some shows in 2011. So I've done a lot of, I'm still very active musically now. So I know that world, but we never had that. We, we were always able to write what we wanted and we always tried to write a better song. Every, you know, the, the latest song we wrote was always the best song one you know because we're always trying to write the best song um and i remember is this the part was i'm pretty sure is this the part was the only one and also what's the um, one off the second record the um some assembly required those two tracks are the only tracks we went into it thinking we need to write something that's a, a bit sort of standard structure yep. pop song sort of vibes but everything else we just wrote it how we wanted to write it and what we thought was the best and really, you know, you hear the old saying of you sold out or whatever, but there's really no selling out. You know, if you a band lives and breathes on their airplay and, and it, yeah. able to get to the fans, so trying yeah. to write a song to get on the radio, there's nothing wrong with that anyway. And Not at all. Like the, the reason the band split is because of that. Like the um, so after we did the second record, um, Receiving Transmission, we were super proud of it. And I'm still really proud of it. I reckon it's a great record. And we wrote the songs we wanted to write. And it came out and the um, record company at the time didn't give it any love. They didn't give it any much of a push. And they came to us like literally just after it came out and said, okay, you've, you've got that out of your system. We need you to write a, like a pop record. They wanted to go that way, like a real pop, you know, radio friendly. Yep. And that was, and there was already a bit of inner turmoil happening. And I, that, I remember I made the calls like, no, I'm not in, I'm out. That's it. So that, that, that's essentially... What the band never broke up, but that's essentially what ended it. Yep, and you, the band was seven years old by this stage, and you know some bands, or a lot of bands, don't even get the seven months old sort of thing. Yeah. So to go through what the all experiences that you guys had gone through, and and as you said, you had your own business, and and you know you're you're all leading separate lives and growing as people as well. You weren't just yep. you know young twenty year old sort of in, you know in it for the music. It's it turns into a business, and and those external pressures must be hard. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They um. It's yeah, it was always a good time. We're always good friends, but there was there was you know you know some issues with a couple of the members combined with what I just said. It, you know, ultimately sort of finished it up. You know, I would I'd absolutely love to still have the band going and be active and be able to do it in a way where you can work around your families, like bands can do. You know, you know, like your Foo Fighters or you know, not we're ever going to be that, but that, but even on whatever scale it's on, be able to do that, be able to tour. Still have your family life, you know. That would be the ultimate dream. And you is know, there any hope that of balance. that happening? No, not with the band. I think um, it's too far gone for that. Uh, you know, you never say never, but I think if anything, um, I'm just talking off the top of my head. I think if anything, we we we, I would I'd like to think we could get together, do some shows, and possibly record some stuff. You know, like um, I've got I've got plenty of like you know material, but who knows. There's no, there's absolutely no talk of it. But I'm, I'm always of the mind of never say never. You know, I'm open to it. And yeah. I suppose if the fans start pushing for a bit of nostalgia, you never know. It might push yeah. the right buttons and set something in motion. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, yeah. When the, uh, the, when the stars align. <laughs> exactly. And another song I really love off that Keepsake EP is After the Fire.
through a bit of a um oh what's the band i'm not gonna be able to remember now grade there was a band called grade we're going through a big grade phase and um that came from that sometimes like a lot of the time you write a song and the the running title for it will be the band that you think it sounds like you know okay so we'd write a record and we'd be like oh this is yeah band x band blah 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 and that's where it came from and that was a really fun song to play live a bit more aggressive a bit more edgy you know yeah and check in um Scotty got to do the uh, the scream thing, you know, that they well, started doing the towards the end. Harder edge that you guys were. Well, yeah, it's two thousand three before our receiving transmission had been re- um, had been received. Yeah, <laughs> receiving yeah. transmission. So, but once, as you said, receiving transmission sort of went back to that sort of. It wasn't as hard edged as after the fire, anyway. No, no, no. Is that one song we are science, which I felt like had that sort of. Um, not we are science. Sorry, the other one, engines failed. Yes, yep. had that sort of heavier edge to it.
Yeah, I think a big part of that too is we used to tour a lot with um, Irrelevant. Uh, really good friends, like awesome band, and um, they obviously did that harder screen thing. So I guess that rubbed off on us. We loved it, and I yeah, and obviously the metal background and whatnot, it was always there. Yeah, and yeah, and there's not much difference between a, a um, punk band and a, and a heavy metal band anyway. It's crunchy uh, pedals on the guitar, and you know, it's I'm sure to a musician there's a few signature changes and whatnot, yep. but to to a listener, it's it's rock and roll. Oh, to me, and I'm constantly saying this to my students um, every week, like, I don't, like, no matter what, you know, like, song, whether it's a country song, a bloody bluegrass song, or a heavy metal song, it's really, when you water it down, it's very, very similar. It's obviously painted with a different brush, but man, there's, you know, there's not much to it. Definitely. You can't get too caught up in, you know, I only like this music. What are some of the touring highlights that spring to mind that you guys did touring overseas or with bands, overseas bands, or what stands out oh, in your mind? So many, so many. Japan is like the top of the list. That was just all out, just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was We just looked after so well. Food was amazing. Fans were amazing. The shows were amazing. That was that was awesome. And just, I remember like lots of the fun stuff, like um, like something that comes straight to mind is Coffs Harbour one year, we were touring with Irrelevant. We played this show, some, some you know, what like just a regular pub and just stupid stuff like Irrelevant would be playing this show and we'd get like a handheld microphone that would be plugged into their monitors so they could hear it on the stage, but the crowd couldn't hear it. Okay, yeah. So we're just there saying the stupidest shit we can to try and get them to laugh and like, and before a song starts, you could see they're getting ready for a song. Someone would grab a drumstick. And like hit the mix hi hats, which were off stage, and to count them in, and they'd all be like, you know, start <laughs> so like just stuff like that, just fun, you know, that typical hanging out with the boys and you know, girls obviously is involved, but that that's all that stuff. And then after the the show, like hanging out, um, oh, what was the town Tarthra down south? We played there's this awesome venue up on the hill, like it's up on like a skillion type of thing. And after the show, we all end up down at the beach with a campfire and there's a couple of acoustic guitars and like, you know, probably 20 people from the show and just good times. Just, they were the, they're the highlights. And they're organic things that you can't plan for that. That yeah, just happens. That's, yeah, exactly right. It was, it's that thing of, you know, you think, um, oh, I'm just going to, you know, have a quiet night tonight and then boom. Yeah. <laughs> it's five in the morning. You're like, woo. <laughs> So as we mentioned before, 2004, you guys released the uh, Receiving Transmission album and you mentioned about the writing process and whatever. Did you put, guys put a lot of pressure on yourselves to replicate the success of the uh, the Eight Days Away album? Nah, that was never, ever a thing. Um, it was just, let's write the best songs we can. And we, I felt like we had moved on and we were at the next stage of the band, like writing songs that I thought were at another level and yeah, pushing ourselves. So yeah. you're maturing as a band. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there was never any pressure. It was just the only pressure was to, you know, write the the best songs we could and perform them. That was that was huge for us. Like, especially me and Mick, like that was that's where the pleasure came from, like playing really well. Like knowing that we, you know, are playing, you know, tight and energy or whatever, but but really had pride in what we did. Yeah. And then when we walked off stage, that's what yeah, made you feel good, you know. Some assembly required is the the lead single off this album. Yep. Too bad you guys couldn't tie it in with IKEA or something like that. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we broke a ukulele in the film clip, so that was you know put it back together. But yeah, that was super fun. That film clip was really fun. Um, there was some old house. It was down Taramara way down like Sydney side. Um, and basically it was demolished, going to be demolished. So we got in there and got to throw guitars through walls and cymbals through windows. And that was actually, that was easily the most fun film clip to make. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That was good. 
bit of demolition. Yeah, yeah. Sales-wise, this album didn't reach the same heights as your previous album, but it had some fantastic songs on it. Another song that I really like off that album is Headlights. Headlights, oh yeah, the, the, the big um, Slash Dog guitar intro. Yeah, yeah, that's a cracker. Big sludgy sort of driving song. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of those songs were pretty much written at a rehearsal studio here at Erina. Yeah, we just get in there and just smash them out. I don't remember too much about that. I just remember having that little intro riff that I was like, oh, is this too much like Sweet Child of Mine? It had that kind of thing going on and um, we ran with it and, yeah, headlights came from it. And it still holds up. So, again, you're yep. obviously on the right track. Yeah, cheers.
So you you mentioned one dollar short. You guys parted ways. Yep. And you joined something with numbers. Yep. Talk us through how that came about. So something with numbers. They started off as being our like little brothers, so to speak. They were like a a younger band that we'd hear at the local rehearsal studio and got to chat to them. They're great guys, and um, we really liked what they did. So we asked them to come on tour with us. They started doing some shows, and then they started getting their own thing going. They were building the fan base and whatnot. And then they overtook us. They did um, Apple of the Eye when that came out, exploded, and they you know they played Big Day at Main Stage and did all kinds of stuff. And if I remember this correctly, Lachlan, the guitarist, he had a thing in his head where once he hit the age of 30, he was going to quit the band, whether they made it or not. I don't know how, but anyway, he had this thing at the age of 30. So anyway, that came around for him and he quit the band. So they asked, they were still touring at the time and asked me if I'd fill in. And I was like, hell yeah, because $1 short by this stage weren't, I can't remember if we'd finished or we'd quiet and dried up or what was happening but i was keen i was like yeah man i'm in I'm, i'll do it so did a, a tour with them um with the bright eyes tour or 89 freedom street maybe the tour was but anyway did that and then basically just ended up being a part of the band so never officially joined but you know wrote that second record when well, there wasn't their second record the late the last record they did so it was uh wrote was in the writing process with that and then recording process and whatever and then the um tour that followed that 
So, yeah, it must have been a, a strange feeling, but a good feeling, a positive feeling to, yeah. to be playing to different type of, a different type of music to a different set of fans. Yeah, it was a different thing. Like, it felt way more – I really enjoyed it because I kind of felt like – I don't want to say session musician, but, like, felt like I didn't – I wasn't invested in the band. Like, I love the guys and I love the band, but it didn't really matter any of the business side of it or the whatever. I was just there for fun, you know, to do the job, like, play, you know, as well as I – um needed to or you know um, the best that I could and just have a good time so I had a lot of fun on those, those shows because I could, because I'd done the whole one dollar short thing I'd kind of I knew that that stuff doesn't last so I could re- I really soaked it in I really felt like every moment on stage with them it was like I had a blast and really 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 enjoyed it and another band that was formulated out of the uh, not ashes of one dollar short or, or something with numbers but it was, it was sort of incubated I suppose is the word is after the fall yeah and you had a bit of an association with those guys as well. Yeah, so after the fall, so some of my numbers after the fall, they were all Central Coast bands and all kind of based, like we all sort of um, mingled through the shop, like East Gosford Music. So they'd all come in and we were all friends firstly, you know, and had a love for music and whatnot. So after the fall, um, Mark, like I said earlier, he worked the shop for me and they were fantastic. Like uh, awesome songs. Like Ben was such a great singer. They were all super strong. They were really great. I love that band. I think they're fantastic. Um, and similar thing to something with numbers. We take them on tour. They'd come and play shows with us. And then they, um, I don't want to say, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, um, but they, they, I was going to say they grew their own wings and took off type of thing, you know? Um, but you guys showed them that this is possible. Yeah, you guys were the the leading light. I suppose a lot of people have said that. Like I've I never thought that, but a lot of people have said. Um, a lot of uh, young bands from the coast have said, "Oh, you know, you showed us that it can happen." You know, which is cool. Um, it's I don't know. It feels so foreign to me that whole concept. It's just it just happened. I don't know how we did it. Yep. I think that, like I said, the luck and the timing and that. But um, but I think the reason you should do it is because you love doing it, and that like like the the pleasure came from um, writing songs and but performing them well. That's that's what, and that's why I still do it. You know, today yep. obviously not a one dollar short, but just with stuff that I do. It's that's um. That's what life is, you know. That's where the the joy comes from. And talking about today, you're um you're still teaching, yeah. And you're also uh, known as the punk rock hillbilly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I um so from the whole Casey Chambers thing, I fell in love with country music, um especially bluegrass music. And I yeah, I released an album. I can't remember what year it was, but it's like maybe four years ago or something. Um, maybe longer. But called the punk rock hillbilly, where I take all like um classic punk rock songs like No Effects and Melancholin and you know, et cetera, but play them in the bluegrass format, which, you know, upright bass, banjo, mandolin, acoustic guitar and violin or fiddle, I should say. And like we did talk about earlier, for me, bluegrass music and punk rock music are very similar. They're obviously played with completely different instruments, but the the pace, the energy, the speed, the, the melody, I, I see a lot of relationship between it. Um, and I think that's probably why I love both genres. Take the wheel, but you're not there, it's so unfair. What if I hit that dog again? Sometimes when I'm lying in my bed, I hear those voices in my head. They influence me to some degree. Now I'm not sure of anything. I wish you knew what I was thinking now. They told me to breathe, told me to lie down. I 
Thinking my chances are one in a million Cause I'm writing the words down I Thinking my chances are one in a million I don't know where, I don't know where to begin Jump a taxi in a flash I know it's wrong His light was on And I just had to get to you Sometimes when I'm talking on the phone I get advice from the dial home. It's nothing new And I'm confused And I can show up anything I wish you knew what I was thinking of It told me to breathe It told me to lie down I'm thinking my chances are one in a million Cause I'm writing the words down I figure my chances are one in a million I don't know where, I don't know where to begin Unreal, mate. Thank you for your time. And it's Thank great you, to mate. great to reminisce uh, about the days of $1 Short and the legacy that you guys have left. And, and you've left some great music. And, and I'm sure, as you've said, you're, you're producing music now and you're going to just keep producing into the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure, mate. Thanks so much for having me. And um, maybe I'll text the boys and see what they're up to. That's it. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's on the record now. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening and thanks to Trent for your time. And thank you to $1 Short for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe. And if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kid saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it, girl. I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know The world is so much wider Than I knew And I wanna let you know You gotta throw away your fears You gotta get down here The weather is so Such a